another conversation with you about some of the stories that matter. We are going to engage in a weekend roundup of some of the biggest stories that came across the wire this weekend. And we want to open up our phone lines to you to join us at 410-319-8888. I had an opportunity to take a look at this new research that came out that highlights what's happening with girls and women and boys slash men. As many of you know, I am a boy's mom. I am co-raising with my husband, co-parenting two young men, 18 and 20 years old. They're both in college now. And if you take a look at the latest statistics that are coming out, boys are climbing up a hill. So I am speaking now to parents who are raising sons in this society. What does it look like for boys of all different races and ethnicities? And particularly, what does it look like for African American and Latinx boys? Our sons, nephews, our grandsons are climbing a hill. Listen to this. For every girl who takes a high school AP honors course, for every 100 girls that take a high school AP, that's an advanced placement, or an honors course in art and music, only 54 boys do. For every 100 young woman who earns an associate degree, an associate's degree, 64 young men do. For every 100 young women who earn a master's degree, 65 men earn a master's degree. For every 100 young women between the ages of 25 to 29 who has a master's degree, there are 73 young men who do. For every 100, this is one that's interesting, for every 100 young women who earn a doctorate's degree, 85 Young men do. And it gets worse as you go along. Listen to how bad this gets. For every 100 young women who attend public schools and have been classified as being mentally challenged, 140 young men have. For every 100 girls who repeat kindergarten, 144 boys do. For every 100 girls who've been suspended from school, 240 boys have been suspended from school. For every 100 girls between the ages of 15 to 29 years old who die, 262 young men of the same age. For every 100 young women between the ages of 20 to 29 who commit suicide, 441 young men between the ages of 20 to 29 have committed suicide. For every 100 young women who've been incarcerated in local jails, 614 young men have been incarcerated. Let me give you a few more before I bring in my guests. For every 100 young women who were incarcerated in state and federal prisons, 1,314 young men are. For every 100 young women who die on the job, 1,171 men die on the job. 
what we're finding is that our young men, boys, are climbing a hill. And if you are raising boys at this time, this data should be startling for you, unsettling for you, disturbing for you. What can we do to raise our boys to men and then equip them of what they need to remain safe so that we can then cut off the gap that exists now between our young girls moving forward and our young boys moving forward. I want to explore that topic along with some of the other news stories with our two guests joining us back again. Denise Clay Murray, who's a reporter and a columnist and editor coming out of Philadelphia, and Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, a professor of political science from the University of Florida. Dr. Austin and Miss Murray, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm excited to have both of you on as we go through some of this new data about what is happening with our boys. The data I laid out talks about boys of all different races and ethnicities, but it is really starkly divided when we begin to pull out what happens with African-American young men and Latinx young men and Asian-American young men versus white young men. We know that the figures are much starker when it comes to dealing with being incarcerated, not finishing high school, or dying before you turn 18. The figures are much higher for young men. Dr. Austin, let me start with you. With this in mind, as we're trying to figure out what's happening in our society, this to me speaks to the importance of why we need to teach critical race theory. 16 states... And Alabama, I believe, was the last one over the last couple of days, have banned the teaching of critical race theory. And for many of us, what we are concerned about is that critical race theory and the understanding of critical race theory, which is really a smokescreen for not wanting to talk about black history, women's history, Latinx history, Asian American history. Like they're only talking about white history, although they're calling it American history, Dr. Austin. Right, exactly. And, you know, when you were reading those statistics, I was thinking about something that I've been talking about with friends here, the lack of black males in college on our campus, the lack of black students just generally. But I noticed in my classes, like for every one black male, sometimes I don't have any, but for every one black male, it's like maybe five or six black females. And that's not to say that we're not happy to see the black women doing well because we are. But it is troubling when you you just can't help but to wonder why, what's going on. I mean, and I'm even teaching a class here at, at my school that talks about the politics of race on our campus, and that's one of the questions that my class even debated about the lack of of black students, period, but especially of black men. I mean, and just... I seem to have lost Dr. Austin. Are you semester? still with us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, but I usually don't have very many um, black males, and it's troubling because, again, it shows the importance of critical race theory. We need to teach the truth about our history, and we need to just come up with some solutions and understand what's going on in the black community. We need to discuss these things and stop thinking about, oh, well, you know, we we shouldn't even devise it to compare the numbers. We need to talk about the fact that there's there's something going on, and we need to really figure out what it is. So critical race theory is just one solution. 
is teaching that because, you know, it's under assault definitely here in my state, in Florida, but across the nation. But there are some other things that are going on as well, and we need to figure out what exactly is the problem. I wonder, uh, Denise, I want to bring you into the conversation because today is the anniversary of the Million Woman March, which uh-huh. was organized in October of 1997. We know shortly after they had the Million Man March. Now, do you think that the way that we're watching young girls and young women succeed, can we trace it back to this time where we actually made a concerted effort to get more young women into college, to get more young women to be independent? Do you you see a direct line between the two. Let me be brutally honest here. We have never really put a concentrated effort into black women of any age. The fact that you have more young black women going to college and, and doing all of that stuff is a function of their own their own desire to be independent. Because we don't pay any attention to them. Because well, while I'm listening to all of the statistics you gave about black men, and yes, they're bad, and, and you know, and they've been, this has been the, the way it's gone for a very long time, I can name at least 10 nonprofit programs in just Philadelphia alone that have been put in place to address those issues. But for every 10 of those programs, there is maybe one that addresses the needs of young black girls. And unfortunately, the way that we tend to handle these situations is we don't handle both sides simultaneously. We will work really, really hard to try to fix our young men, and that's important. I'm not saying it's not. But if we do not also keep an eye on the young women at the same time, all what ends up happening is the statistics flip-flop, and we're right back where we started. Well, then let, let me just ask that just to kind of follow up on that. Wasn't that the purpose of the Million Woman March, though? Wasn't that a time to focus on family unity, on what it means to be a black woman in America? I mean, at one point they were calling for repentance for the pain of black women caused by other black women. Was that what we were doing back in October 1997, Denise? Well, we were doing some of that, but we were also, it was also in a lot of ways another form of second-class citizenship. Because if you remember the Million Man March in 1995, and, and I remember it because I had an editor at a newspaper I worked at, the Philadelphia Tribune, tell me point blank that I could not cover the Million Man March despite the fact that I was a senior reporter on staff because I was not a guy. So the Million Man March, for all the good it did, it also highlighted some of the sexism that we are still dealing with within the black community. And the Million Women's March was not only a way of getting, you know, black women to come and, and, you know, put their issues to the forefront. It was also a form of damage control that was, de- that was designed to make what the Million Man March didn't want to talk about, which was the fact that a lot of the men that were out there were going to go home and not necessarily address the main issues in their life, namely how you treat your how you treat your female partner, how you treat your children with any kind of and I guess the only word I can come up with um, any kind of you know 
meaning to it, you know, and, and this needed to be addressed. Like I said, I'm not dismissing all of the statistics that have to deal with young black men. They're bad, and they've been bad for a very, very long time, and we need to address them. But we cannot, but if we only fix one side of the problem, the problem is going to be, the problem is still going to remain. And we have to be honest with ourselves about that. But it looks like, uh, Dr. Austin, that we're missing black men, right? The figures that came across and were published in the New York Times, uh, they published a research that showed that we're missing like 1.4 million black men is what they're arguing. That Mm -hmm. due to what's happening with incarceration, due to what's happening with the ways in which our black men are targeted, that for every 100 black women in an urban city, there are only 89 black men. Right. I think if if what I'm understanding uh, Denise is saying, I, I agree exactly with what she's saying. You quoted some really troubling numbers, but nevertheless, we do need to focus on both the men, the men and the women. And I think that's the problem. We focus so much on the disparities and how black men tend to be worse off because the numbers are showing that. But that means that sometimes people almost it's as if they assume that black women don't have problems. And so that leads to just a a lot of divisiveness and a lot of other issues because black women end up being ignored. Like here in Florida a few years ago, there was a woman named Marissa Alexander. Uh, We have a law here called Stand Your Ground, and that was the law that George Zimmerman used as a rationale for killing Trayvon Martin. And so, um, you know, that case, of course, received a lot of attention, and rightfully so, because Zimmerman eventually was found not guilty for murdering um, this man, and he used Stand Your Ground and said he was practicing self-defense. But Marissa Alexander was a black woman who was in an abusive marriage, and she uh, was in a situation where her husband, I guess, was about to assault her again. And according to what she said, she had a gun, and she fired it, fired the gun into the ceiling. And now I guess it's, it's uh, been disputed whether or not it was in the ceiling and whether she fired it at him. But nevertheless, she didn't shoot him. And then she tried to use stand your ground as a defense, but she was sent to jail anyway. So that is an example of like the double standards. You know, most people have, pro- have probably heard of Trayvon Martin in the black community, but very few people have heard of Marissa Alexander because we don't hear about issues involving black women. Even recently with Breonna Taylor, that's one of the few times in which you've heard about a black woman being a target of police abuse and getting that attention. When a black woman is missing, you know, usually she's no one really cares. If a, you know, you hear so much about this young white woman whose body was found, and then the man who allegedly killed her, his body was found, her boyfriend, her fiancé. But yet you don't really hear very much about black women when they're in those abusive-type situations. And so I think the thing is it's troubling about black men, and we do need to be concerned about the issues with black men, but we also need to be concerned about black women as well, and just not to just always focus solely on the men and insinuate that women don't have problems. I think that ties in, um, Denise, into us trying to figure out how we can lean in for young black women. Something that you said that I just want to drill down on, you said the fact that young black women are getting ahead, are going to college, are the highest rate in terms of college graduates, masters and PhDs, it's because of their own tenacity and their own desire to want to provide something different for themselves and for the next generation. I don't think that can be understated, but we also can't overlook the fact that that black women are rising. I feel like there's been a concerted effort 
to focus on and lift up black women from Stacey Abrams to Michelle Obama to Lizzo. Like, we can keep going. The number of black women who are public figures and are examples of the kind of work that we have been doing in terms of the rising tide lifting all boats. Well, you you have a point there, but I again go back to what I said earlier, which is that we have never really put that kind of effort into black women. We just haven't. I mean, the only reason that I managed to do what I do, and I've managed to pull off what, I, what I've managed to pull off in my life and in my career is because I had a mother who let me know in no uncertain terms that I had, I was, I was too intelligent not to achieve. My father, on the other hand, wasn't all that crazy about me going to college in the first place. So the thing is, we don't, for all of the Stacey Abramses and Michelle Obamas and all those people out there who have managed to excel as black women, there are thousands of us, and I noticed because I used to teach some of them in southwest Philadelphia, who are basically being more discouraged than encouraged to move forward because we tend not to pay attention to black women. And I, I stick with what I said. If you see a black woman like a Stacey Abrams, like a Michelle Obama, like that woman that has a PhD and is a full professor at a college or who has invented something, if you, if you see, you know, the, the, the woman that created the COVID-19 vaccine, Dr. if Kizzy you see COVID. these women, it's because they had to fight for themselves because we tend not to fight for them. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I will agree with that. Now, what's interesting, we have three black women here on this panel. So definitely, I want to be clear, I am in no way <laughs> disputing that we have focused on black women and that we need to focus on black women and we need to lift up our black girls. I think it, what, what struck me with this, this research, Dr. Austin, I guess as a boy's mom, I stopped and said, okay, so what can I do? to make sure that my sons, my black sons, and I don't feel that we focus on our black young men enough either, not when it comes to positive things. I think we do a good job as a society of pointing out all the negative things that young black men are involved in, and we don't do enough of uplifting young black men whose parents, whose grandparents, whose community, the wind beneath their wings to make sure that they're staying on the path here. I guess I would say that I agree with that to some degree, but I think one there are a lot of issues involved, I think, with black men. And, I, of course, I can't speak for black men because I'm not a man, but I have a teenage son, uh, and I was just on another show in Baltimore uh, talking about my son a couple of weeks ago and the fact that he has severe autism. But, I mean, I think the thing with, with black men is that, uh, at least with black boys, is that there just are not enough advocates. First of all, you have some black boys who just don't have enough uh, male role models. And even though I think the mothers who are single moms are doing a fantastic job, doing a, a much better job than I could possibly do as a mom myself, but I think, you know, you still have to admit, I mean, and I'd be curious to hear from your callers, um, you have to admit that I think a boy needs to have male role models. And you have some boys who have grown up, and they don't have positive black men in their lives. And so I think that's a large part of the problem 
And then also, I think even with just the way that the schools treat black boys, like they're more likely, I don't have any numbers or anything that I can cite, but I'll be willing to bet that black boys are a lot more likely to be put in special education oh, absolutely. classes. absolutely. That's what the statistics show. Yeah, yes. because, of course, my son needed to be in special education because he has a, a disability. But, I mean, I have seen over the years boys who've been in my son's class who've been really, really super smart boys and I'm not saying my son isn't smart or boys with autism are, but they have not needed to be in a special education class. And I even have a friend who has a son who has a mild form of autism, and she eventually started to just homeschool her son because she got so tired of fighting all these battles at school when they were trying to put him in classes, and he could do a lot more work than they were not really trying to challenge him. And so I think we have a lot of that with black boys, and as parents, you really do have to watch what's going on at school. You have to um, watch what your kids are doing, look at the classes that they're in, the classes they're taking, the classes the teachers are recommending they take, because sometimes people just assume that black boys can't do the work. And, and that is something I think when you are, are growing up having people telling you over and over again about what you can't do, I think after a while that does start to affect your psyche, and it really starts to make you think that you can't do anything. And, and so as a result, you kind of stop trying. I agree with that. Let me, let me get some callers into this. 410-319-8888. We're looking at what is happening with some of the, the recent research around the ways in which young girls uh, and young boys are having a very different experience. Um, Denise Clay Austin, our, our, our guest from Philadelphia, just put on the table that, you know, we've never focused on uplifting black women with a concerted effort. Denise, would you say that we've done that work with black folks? I'm thinking about, of course, uh, President Barack Obama's program, uh, Brothers Keeper, that that was specifically designed for black black boys, and people complained that there wasn't something similar for black girls. And that's often the complaint. I mean, like I said, I can maintain 10 nonprofit groups here in Philadelphia that are focusing on black men. And I'm not saying that the work is not legitimate or that it's not needed. We have a murder rate that's going through the roof here that's mostly black men being unable to problem-solve in a way that isn't destructive. So, yeah, that needs to happen. That needs to, that needs to happen, and it needs to be fixed. But you also have women out here shooting each other. You also have young girls who don't have the encouragement they need to prosper. You have young girls that are still, you know, trying to be, trying to raise children by themselves when they're barely out of high school. There are things that we need to balance the scales. We need to stop having this one-sided approach that only focuses on one group of people. It needs to focus on everybody because if you look at the black community in any state in the nation, everything all of the all the things that could happen are, are below where they're supposed to be or where they need to be for us to all be successful. So we need to stop focusing so much on just one side and do something that deals with the totality of the issues of the community, which will help everybody. Folks, we're going to hold it here. Thank you so much, Denise. Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk to our guests about what's happening with critical race theory, what's happening in Tennessee, and the way they're banning the teaching of black history, and open up for your phone calls when we return. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead. I'm joined here with by Dr. Sharon Wright Austin, professor of political science from the University of Florida, and Denise Clay Murray, a reporter, columnist, and editor from the Philadelphia Sunday Sun. She has a column there and in the Philadelphia Magazine, and she has an Everyday People column in the Philadelphia Public Record. We're talking about a roundup of the week's news, and we started with the recent data that came out about young boys and young girls and how there's a marked difference between the success of young girls versus the lack of success as it lays out for young boys. I invite you to join our conversation before we begin to talk about what's going on in Tennessee. Let me go to Gene from Pikesville. Gene, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. And uh, what is this, afternoon? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm confused. Dr. K, you know I'm always confused when I call him. um, Success. You use the word success, and then you're measuring the success how? It, 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 you're saying that the young ladies are uh, becoming educated and getting degrees, and on the back end, they are being rewarded with, um, they're getting paid well. The young boys, you're saying, are not? Because I, what I, could, I only could speak for myself. We, we took the approach that my son was not a good student. But he loved technology, and so we say, okay, well, let's just encourage him to be, you know, one of these tech, one of these uh, computer kids, right? And so now he's a programmer analyst, and, and uh, uh, writes code uh, with a lot of people from India, and he makes the same amount of money as his girlfriend, who is has graduated from med school. So. Uh, uh, is he successful? But with the, in terms of talking about success, what we're trying to figure out, Gina, I want to make sure I understand your question before I ask the guest to answer it. In looking at the statistics, it was talking about, like, for every 100 young girls to graduate from high school, they were uh-huh. saying only 84, you know, young men graduated. From every 100 girls who got a master's degree, maybe mm-hmm. 72 young men got a master's degree. Well, we, it wasn't really comparing it in the way you're comparing what they're trying to talk about across the board. They were looking at broad statistics, not anecdotal stories of one story of success, your son and his, his wife or girlfriend, but talking about across the board the number of young girls and how they're achieving versus I, I, I the number get, of boys. Oh, so I don't know what I you get, mean by I get success that, Dr. K, but what I'm saying is, how are you measuring this? You know what I mean? It's like, they, they how, were how looking we... at graduation rates. They looked at incarceration. They didn't talk anything about making money. They talked about the number of people getting master's degrees, BA degrees, getting what incarcerated, What good is it getting it if you're not going to make money? They, they weren't, this does not talk about making money. It's talking about Okay, degrees. okay, okay. I'll get it now. Okay. Okay, no problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and so I'll come back to you, um, Denise, uh, in terms of talking maybe a little bit about what Jean was getting into, because the study wasn't going into, it wasn't anecdotal stories of success. Oh, you know, I have a degree, my husband doesn't, he makes more, or we both have degrees and we have more. It wasn't kind of breaking it down like that. Do you think maybe it should begin to get into those, get into the weeds with figuring out how girls and boys are doing or young men and young women? It would make more sense because when you don't get into the weeds, it ends up being these big headlines that lead to more so arguments than they do discussions on how we can level the playing field for everyone. Um, we, when you, when you just put statistics out there, but you don't necessarily put the 
you know, flesh them out. You know, people tend to work using those statistics, and that may not be what is needed. I mean, community colleges are places where people are getting training and, and different things, and they don't necessarily have to go to a four-year school. Or, you know, there's technical, there's technical schools. There's all these other different things. Even in high schools, they have um, vocational technical high schools where you can learn stuff, where you can get licensed to do certain things, you know, the minute you get out of school. And, you know, not everyone needs a master's or a Ph.D. or any, or something like that in order to be considered successful. I mean, in a way, you come dangerously into the realm of respectability politics mm-hmm. when you make degrees the main criteria for success. Well, now that is very interesting. Okay, so I want to piece that out, because when we get into respectability politics, and that is research that was put forth by Dr. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham out of Harvard, who really is the first one to lay on the table respectability politics. Before we go too far into that, uh, Dr. Austin, I just want to ask you, when we're talking about the research, I know you're trained as a political scientist, I'm trained as a historian, I look for the big number, the big data. I want to know the, the bigger, broader story uh, that may not get into the weeds. From your perspective, how important is it to, to do what Gene is talking about? Really start to piece out these kind of the, the individual data points to get a better story of what is happening. I think he raised a really good question about what exactly, how do we measure success? Because as he said, you know, I guess he, I think he said his son uh, is right. making just as much, if not more, money than his girlfriend, who's a doctor. Right. And so I think that those type that type of data should be included because usually men tend to make more than women, and especially with black women, we tend to be the lowest paid workers out of any other group. And so this will make you wonder if a man has less of an education, but yet he still is making more money than a woman who has a, doc, uh, a doctoral degree, a medical degree, then that is something that's interesting because that brings in a whole other set of questions. Uh, is he making more simply because of his gender? And in the black community, we tend to, of course, focus more so on race because most of us are affected more so by racism than black women are by sexism. But that would kind of lead to some questions as to even if a, a black woman has more of an education, is she still going to make make less money than a black man who has uh, even if she has more of an education, is she still going to make less money than a black man who has less of an education? So that raises a whole num- number of other issues. So I guess just by looking at the numbers, it's hard to say exactly what the status is of black men and women. But nevertheless, those numbers are troubling because there are so many large disparities between the numbers of black men and women who are attending college, graduated from college, getting certain types of jobs, going to prison. And even if you look at like health issues, uh, I would assume that there's probably more of a disparity of black men with certain types of health issues. And so whether we like it or not, we do have to acknowledge the fact that, especially when it comes to education, that black men are just not getting the same type of education, achieving the same educational levels as black women. And we still need to find out what exactly is the problem and how do we address it. I think that takes us into another area, Denise, and I want to spin back around to this notion of respectability politics and couple that with the wage pay gap, because something that Dr. Austin put on the table, which is absolutely correct, black women are 
the one of the large, the lowest paid workforces in this country. We know that it takes black women a year and roughly eight months. It's not until August of the following year that we catch up to what our white male counterparts are making in one year. But we know that coming down below us is Latinx women. It takes them until, you know, into September, early October. And then indigenous women, it takes them into November before we're even catching up with our white male counterparts. So when you talk about, well, I'm a woman and I have a doctorate, I'm a black woman, taking into account intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And you can end up making less money than your male counterpart. If you're dating a white man, probably making a lot more money, even if he does not have a degree. Because we understand this wage pay gap and the discrimination that for black women affects us on both the gender line and on the racial line. That's true. I mean, if I learned nothing else from journalism, I've learned that the pay gap is real. And, I mean, there are people out there that have been in the business less time than I have. And when, and because they're men, you know, when I go to negotiate a project, I have to, you know, demand a little bit more. Uh, I, have, you know, I have to demand the same kinds of things that these guys just get right off the bat. And, you know, that's, that's not cool either, because when you look at the totem pole of who gets who gets paid, what black women are at the bottom, and you know, for all of our education and, and stuff like that, that still doesn't change. And you know, that's another one of those things that we have to address simultaneously. So with respectability politics, Dr. Austin, to pull you into this, and it's this idea that we know uh, that came out of the 1960s, and and what did it mean to be acceptable within the black community? That respectability politics, even though when Evelyn Brooks Hickenbotham used it, she used it as a form of empowerment in terms of the way that black women were able as club women to find ways to move ahead, to find ways to present yourself one way to the outward facing community and another way to the inward facing community, that you can do both things in terms of lifting as you climb, as black women in the 19th century talked about. But we know it's been picked up and the way it's looked at now is almost something disparaging about this respectability politics that we have have this this look that has to be part of the black community, that's the look that's acceptable for how we're going to move forward. So we have both of those things on the table, but I am wondering if respectability politics, as, as Denise put on the table, is something that is locking so many black folks into pushing college for every young black child rather than saying, let's get a trade going on knowing that college is not for everyone, but we've always been led to believe that college is the route out of living in economically challenged communities. Right, and I think I definitely agree with what you just said about the perception of respectability politics. Now people look at it almost as if it's a negative thing, because I have a good friend who wrote a book. His name is uh, Fred Harris. He's a professor at Columbia University. He wrote a book that I used in my class several times called The Price of the Ticket that talked about Barack Obama and just some of the criticisms that people had of um, President Obama before we really you know, knew very much about him when he first announced that he was running for president. And a lot of people said that when President Obama was giving speeches, he would always, when he was before a black audience, say something that was almost scolding them. Like once he gave a speech on Father's Day at a predominantly black church and 
he talked about the fact that, you know, their black fathers are just not in the home and, and that type of thing. And people really criticized him for it because they said when he spoke in front of a white audience, the message was totally different. So now respectability politics has, I guess, a different type of meaning than it used to, than it used to have. But whether we like it or not, you know, you are judged on the basis of your education. And so to answer your question, you know, we do push college because college is, you know, the route that most people think of as the best way to gain upward mobility. But there are other ways as well, like you said, learning a trade. And then also we can't forget about the military. Despite the problems in, in the military historically over the years with race and racism, a lot of people, especially in the black community, have used the military as an, an upward mobility um, way to, to gain upward mobility. And so I think we push education I don't even know if it's because of a politics of respectability, but we push it because we know that that's the best way to really be able to enhance and improve your life, your quality of life, is if you get an education. But you really have to want to get one because as a professor for the last almost 30 years, I have met students who've been in college, but it was obvious they just didn't want to be there. They wanted the degree, but they didn't want to work for it. They just, it's almost as if they felt like, I don't run into very many students like this, but every once in a while I'll have one who will just come in and they just feel like I shouldn't have to write a paper. I shouldn't have to take a test. I shouldn't have to do anything because I should just be able to get this degree without having to work for it. So I think the politics of respectability is, is really just realistic because whether we like it or not, you have to either get an education or learn a trade or go to the military or do something else constructive with your life. And that's not trying to tell your kids to be respectable. That's just telling them just the reality of just the way things are in, in America and just really the way things are all across the world. I wonder, though, when just laying that out, I'm not sure if there's if that, that, that many options, Denise, right? So you either go to college, and your path to college, if you come from a family that is economically advantaged and parents can pay for that's a different experience. But you may be going to college taking on more debt because you got to take out loans to get through college. And if you're not choosing the right major, Denise, you're not going into some six-figure job to pay off your loans immediately, right? So the second, you learn a trade. Third, you go into the military, and going into the military, the, the road to get there is, of course, a little bit longer than the way it used to be. I can't do anything, so I'm going to join the service. Now, you need to have skills coming in the door, or maybe you have another type of, maybe you're an entrepreneur. I mean, it's not a lot of paths when we talk about what does it mean to work for upward mobility. I mean, we want young people to work for what you love, but you want to be able to work what you love and also be able to pay your mortgage, right, Denise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like get you a car so you can keep moving, but you got to be able to do that as well. That's true. And um, But when I hear the phrase respectability politics, it doesn't necessarily mean what you do for a living to me, or at least not to the young people that use the phrase um, in my presence. They're thinking more about how you present yourself. Like, for example, Lizzo, who has taken to wearing, you know, sheer outfits that are see-through and exposed parts of her body that tend to make people, you know, get up in arms and, oh, how can you do that? How can you present yourself that way? You know, you're just being nasty or fast or whatever. And and that is what the young people who say who talk to me about respectability politics are talking about. Now, 
my understanding from my 57-year-old brain is closer to what you said. And, and you have a lot of people who believe that unless you went to college, you know, they kind of look down their nose at you. Personally, some of the most intelligent people I know have no degrees at all and have done a lot with their lives. My father was in the military for 32 years and rose to the rank of command sergeant major. And while he took college courses while he was in the military, I don't know if he 